and uh, let's pick up our conversation. This is Wednesday, July 21st. We're studying the Torah portion of Et Hanan. And we are up to, let's see if I can remember where we're up to over here. We are, yeah, we're up to reading number four. Reading number three was a quick one. Reading number four is for Wednesday, which is today. And so we are poised to step right into the conversation. Okay, this is the fifth chapter of the book of Devarim, of the book of Deuteronomy. First, number one, we begin right now. And Moses called all Israel and said to them, again, context is shortly before his passing, last few weeks of his life, every day he's gathering the people and speaking to him. So on this particular day, he called them, he gathered them, and he said the following, Shema Yisrael. Sounds familiar, but this is not the Shema. This is a different ending. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I speak in your ears this day, and learn them and observe them to do them. So again, you need to read this a little bit differently than than the way I made it sound. So basically, hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I speak in your ears this day. In other words, pay attention to what I'm telling you. Not only listen, but learn them. And not only learn them, observe them. So let's discuss these three words. Hear, learn, and observe. Hearing means you're paying attention. You're listening, you're paying attention. It's not something that goes in one ear and out the other. It's attentive listening, or what we we might call active listening. Active listening to, to the message of Torah and mitzvot. That's point number one. That's the Shema. Shema means active listening. The second one, ulamadatem oisam, and learn them. What does that mean to learn? It's not just active listening. Active listening is still in the modality of receiving. It's I'm listening, I'm receiving, and I'm attentive, and I'm actively open to, 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 to learning, or to, to receiving. But learning is even more active. Learning means I now am engaging in the topic I'm questioning and exploring and comparing and contrasting. It's an active participation with the material. So there's active listening. Then there's active participative study. And the final word, the final phrase here is observe. Ushmartim la'asaisim, observe them to do them, which means talk is cheap. Listening is a little bit more expensive. Learning is a little bit more expensive. But action, I don't mean literally expensive, but action is the most critical. I I mentioned this recently in a class. The Talmud asks the question, what's greater? What's better, to study Torah or to do a mitzvah? uh, um, Study or action. And the Talmud says study is greater because it leads to action. Talmud gadol shemevili de maiseh. Why is study greater? Because it leads to action. You can't do unless you know. But what's the, what's the primary point of it all? Not to study. Not just to study. It's to study so that we know how to live our lives. We know how to do a mitzvah. We know how to live Jewishly, spiritually, be connected with God and with others in our purpose. So here, Moses, in this one sentence, in this one verse, the first verse of chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, really captures the whole spectrum of experience. We're supposed to listen, we're supposed to learn, and we're supposed to do, right? Touching on all the faculties. Okay, let's continue. 
Moses continues, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Again, the same word, the same euphemism used for, I don't know if it's euphemism or the name that's used here for Mount Sinai. God made a covenant with us. Moses says to the people, God, 40 years ago, God made a covenant with us at Mount Sinai. Now with our forefathers, look at this. Now with our forefathers did God make this covenant. But with us, we, all of whom are here alive today. So it's not once upon a time God did this, that, or the other. God loved Abraham. He loved Isaac. He loved Jacob. He made deals with them. He made covenants with them. He chose them. No. God chose you. God made a deal with you. God loves you. God wants you to do to do what uh, to do Torah mitzvahs. Now, you know, remember that old um, military commercial or whatever, Uncle Sam, you know, with the finger, like Uncle Sam wants you, that sort of thing. Okay, that's exactly what Moses is doing to the people. Not exactly, even better, right? Moses is telling the people, God wants you. It's not with your parents, it's not with your grandparents, it's not with your bubbies and your zadies, it's you. And when we study this, I mentioned this yesterday, DPP. When we study this, every time the word you, the Torah uses the word today, the commentators explain, it's the today that is today. Yeah, so Wednesday, July 21st, 2021, is the today that this verse, number three, in chapter five of Deuteronomy, is speaking of. God did not make the covenant only with our grandparents, predecessors, etc., but with us, you and I, right here, who are alive Today, literally today. Let's continue. Moses recounts and recalls the spectacle, the incredible experience at Sinai. Verse 4, face to face, panim bepanim, face to face, the Lord spoke with you at the mountain out of the midst of fire. By the way, you is us because we were all at Sinai. You may know this famous Jewish teaching, all Jewish souls were at Mount Sinai. So face to face, the Lord spoke with you. That means you and I at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. And Moses says, and I stood. I love how they put, I don't know if I love, but it's interesting how they put this in parentheses. Because it is somewhat of a parenthetical statement, right? Because if you, if you can go, you could go from verse four to this last word and then jump straight into six. Because what we're doing now, drum roll, please. We're about to recount the Ten Commandments. Moses is about to retell the Ten Commandments, and we're going to explore them and and study them in depth. But it's in the context of Moses recalling the experience at Sinai. So Moses says, face to face, God spoke with you. and, And I stood between the Lord and you at that time to tell you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid of the fire, and you did not go up on the mountain. This is a reference to the fact that the first two commandments were heard from God directly. The other eight... They heard it through Moses. Yeah, they heard it through Moshe. Why? Because when when they heard the first two commandments, it was so, I don't know what the, the experience was so big, they actually died. They lost their lives. The Talmud says, their souls flew out of their bodies. And then God had to resurrect them. And then it happened again. And the people said, okay, this is a bit intense. It's not what we were necessarily, you know, banking on. So Moses, why don't you convey the messages to us in a way that is a little bit more sustainable and accessible? And that's what happened. So Moses 
reminds them that he stood between. And again, standing between is not like Moses, an intermediary or something like that, like getting in the way of our relationship with God, but Moses helping facilitate this conversation or this communication uh, more accurately. Um, you were afraid of the fire, you did not go over the mountain. So this is what God said. So face to face, God spoke to you, and this is what he said. And here we began the ten, the begin the Ten Commandments. Before we begin reading the Ten Commandments for the second time in Torah, because we read, we, we read them in, in, in context of the chronological story in the book of Exodus, all the way back three books ago in the book of Exodus, before we get into the second appearance of the Ten Commandments, I need to tell you that there are subtle distinctions between the two sets of commandments. Tip, mo- for the most part, they're identical. But there's a few different distinctions, some of which we've discussed in previous sessions. So, for example, when it comes to Shabbat, there are some distinctions between the original or the first iteration of the Ten Commandments as told in Exodus to this iteration of Ten Commandments as retold by Moses four years later. How do you reconcile the distinction? What is it? Just somebody got it wrong? What's the correct version? Famously, our tradition tells us that both versions were set at Sinai. One appears in Exodus and the other appears here in Deuteronomy. What does that mean? It means that God is not limited by the, um, by the structure of communication that you and I know. Which means the following. When you and I communicate, we say one thing at one time. And if you want to say a second thing, then you say it after that first thing. You say point number one, and then you say point number two. But you can't say point number one and point number two at the same time. I mean, you can say point number one that includes hints to ideas or includes other details that could be considered point two, three, four, or five, etc. But if you're trying to explicitly say something, you can only say one thing at one time. That's the limitation of communication speech in our box, in our realm of existence. God is not subject to our limitations. God created the matrix. God created the sandbox. God is not forced to be stuck in said sandbox, which means that God, when God communicates, God can communicate more than one point at one time. In the language of one of the most famous prayers in Judaism, the Lecha Dodi prayer that we say Friday nights in synagogue. Lecha Dodi, right? In Lecha Dodi, one of the stanzas begins, Shamar v'zachar b'diborecha. That God said Shamar, the word Shamar, which means watch. And Zachar, which means remember, God said b'diborecha in one utterance. What does that mean? It's a reference to the Ten Commandments. In one instance, it says, keep the Sabbath day. And the other version says, remember the Sabbath day. So which is it? Are we supposed to keep Shabbat or remember whatever that means? Remember Shabbat. The answer is both. Yeah, but which one did God really say? Both. Which one first? No, both at the same time. How is it possible to say Shammar and Zachar at the same time? Don't limit God. (laughs) <laughs> right? Don't, don't apply your limitations to God. Shamar v'zachar b'dibarechad. God spoke. Shamar and zachar guard and, and remember, keep and remember 
God said those two phrases at the same exact time. Okay, so what this, what this does for us, oh, and I think last year I even, I even mentioned um, audio. There's audio that you and I have possibly heard. Remember there was um, Laurel and Yanny or something? Remember that? That internet sensation? There are internet, there are, there, there, there are audio clips on the internet that you can listen to. And depending on what you visualize, you will hear that word. It's the same audio. You hit play, it's the same audio clip. But based on your perception, you hear it differently. Now, what does that mean? It means that even within the rules of nature, our rules of nature, there's still a possibility sometimes, given under the right conditions, to hear two different communications simultaneously. That's a possibility even within our realm, let alone when we talk about God who's not subject to these limitations whatsoever. So what's the point? The point is that, that this is the second iteration of the Ten Commandments. And we'll see some distinctions between this one and the, first, and the version in Exodus. But both were said, the Dibur Echad in one utterance. So let's go. This is what God said. We begin with verse number six, which is commandment number one. I am the Lord your God. Anochi Hashem who took you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of bondage. You shall, have, you shall not have the gods of others in my presence. Okay? You shall not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness, which is, we talked about this yesterday, right? No graven images, no likeness, which is in the heavens above, which is on the earth below, or which is in the water beneath the earth. So no images of celestial beings or earthly beings or... Or um, water beings, beings that are, what's the, I don't know what a good word for that is, but, you know, ocean life or sea life. We clarified in yesterday's discussion, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, that this is in the context of worship. You're allowed to make um, a sculpture of someone, but you can't worship that sculpture, which it clarifies in verse number nine, you shall not prostrate yourselves before them, nor worship them, which again is the condition for the prohibition of verse 8. When is it prohibited to make a graven image? It's in the context of prostrating before them and worshiping them. You see how verse 8 and 9 work together according to the commentaries that I'm sharing with you. Yeah, verse 8 says, don't make the images. And verse 9 says, why? Because, or, or when is it prohibited? When you're going to worship them. Why not? Why not worship them? Why not worship the images? For I, the Lord your God, am a zealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons, upon the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Let's continue. And I perform loving kindness to thousands of generations of those who love me and to those who keep my commandments. So what we see here is the, um, what would we call it? The collateral damage. The intergenerational trauma of sin lasts for three or four generations. But what, when it comes to the intergenerational benefit or blessing that, that is um, evoked by acts of kindness and goodness, that lasts for thousands of generations. 
And based on this, our sages tell us that good is always more powerful than evil. Look, an evil act only has an effect for three or four generations, but a good act can last as long as a thousand. And this is something the Rebbe would often reference in various contexts. Like, for example, if something, God forbid, happened, a, a very negative thing happened in the world, the Rebbe would, would usually speak about it and then reframe it and say, look, we can, learn a we can learn a lesson from this. If in the realm of evil, such evil could be committed on such a large scale, God forbid, right? So for certainly in good, each of us has the power to, uh, to, to unleash incredible light and goodness in the world. Because if it's true of, of evil, it's most certainly true in an even greater uh, level when it comes to goodness. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, let's continue. Next commandment. You shall not take, this is commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So again, just to, just to clarify, commandment number one is, I'm the Lord your God. Commandment number two is, do not have any other gods. Commandment number three is, do not, um, do not create the graven images. Commandment number four is, do not take the name. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me, let me, re, let me rewind here for a second. Um, this is still, no, Sabbath is four. So this is still three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain is three. So what was two? Two is, you shall not have any other gods, which includes making graven images. That is my understanding. So one is I'm the Lord your God. Two is this whole thing of, you know, anti-idol worship. And number three is not taking the name of God in vain. For the Lord will not hold blameless anyone who takes his name in vain. Okay, that's three. Number four is keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Oh, keep. Shamar. Keep. In Exodus, it was remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Remember, Zachar. Here it's Shamar. See? Shamar. Keep the Sabbath day to sanctify it as the Lord your God commanded you. The Torah, the, the Ten Commandments, continue with the details of what Shabbos is. Six days may you work and perform all your labor. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall perform no labor, neither you, your son, your daughter, your manservant, your maidservant, your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock, nor the stranger who is within your cities, in order that your manservant and your maidservant may rest like you. Basically, on Shabbos, on Shabbat, the prohibition of work extends to one's entire household. Not only one's family, but also one's help. And not only one's help, but even one's animals. There's a great story of a, of a Jew who owned a cow. And he had to sell his cow. He sold it to a non-Jewish neighbor. And a few days later, a week later, the guy, the, 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 the purchaser, comes back to the, to the Jew and he says, take your cow back, give me back my money. He says, what's wrong? He says, your cow is messed up. You got a crazy cow. What's wrong? He's like, your cow refuses, one day a week, refuses to work. The man smiled. Ah, that's Shabbos, right? It's a, a Shabbos cow. The Talmud tells this story, right? It sounds, it, it's, it sounds hilarious, which it kind, it kind of is also. But this man did not work his cow on Shabbos. And so it was like this internal clock that the cow knew on Shabbos, you know, every seven days, I'm not working. 
This guy tried everything. The, 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 the non-Jewish guy who bought the cow tried everything. The cow wasn't budging. It's a, it's a clear, it's not, it's not commentary, it's, not, uh, it's, it's straight up in the Ten Commandments. Right? The Ten Commandments say, what is Shabbos? Six days a week we work, the seventh day is a day of rest, and the prohibition against work applies to us, our children, our help, the, the, the household help, as well as the animals and the stranger, in other words, the non-Jew that's living in Israel, etc. This is referring to everybody who is in and around the area. Now, this raises the question, raises a halacha question. Many are familiar, many are familiar with the concept of a Shabbos goy, which means that somebody who's not Jewish who helps out a Jew or a Jewish family on Shabbos, if they need something, lights on, lights off, whatever. We have to be very careful, even though it's something that has been popularized and whatever, when it comes to halacha, it's not so simple to ask someone to do work for you on Shabbos. The only time that you're allowed to ask someone who's not Jewish to do work for you on Shabbos is if it's for their benefit, not if it's for your benefit completely. So if they somehow have benefit from it, that's one thing. But if it's just for you, the Torah prohibits it. The Torah says no labor and includes all this, all, all, all these categories of, of, of those who are not permitted to do labor. And that essentially means we can't do the work, nor can the work be done for us. In fact, there are many conversations and discussions about the viability, the halachic viability, the Jewish legal viability, or permissibility, to order a package right, that is set to deliver on Shabbos. Because what that means is, you know, you order from Amazon and you know it says the delivery is going to be Saturday. So here's the question. Is that okay? Because what that means is that somebody's going to be doing for work, work for you on Shabbos. Someone's going to be driving to your house, taking a package, scanning it, walking it to your front door and leaving it there for you on Shabbos. And so sometimes... I'm not, I, I don't want to get into this, to this issue. It's a, it's, a, it's, a lar- it's a big issue that has many, many, many re- subtopics and related topics, and it's a fascinating conversation. We'll have to leave it for another time. Um, but there might be a difference between whether you choose the shipping or whether the supplier chooses the shipping, in which case you can say, I didn't ask for it on Shabbos, so I, I, I would be fine with it on Friday or Sunday. But if you specifically choose for it to be on Shabbos, that could, I'm not telling you, I'm not ruling, I'm not giving you a psak, halacha here, I'm not giving you a ruling, but it could be a little bit more problematic. Okay, the point is, this is commandment number four, prohibition against work on Shabbat. And of course, what is work? What is, how do you define work? The Mishnah and the Talmud go, go into great detail describing the 39 specific categories of work that are prohibited on Shabbos. Let's continue verse number 15. And you shall remember... And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God took you out from there with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. And here we find another distinction between the Ten Commandments here and in Exodus. In Exodus, it says, why keep Shabbos? Why keep Shabbat? Why six days work and then seven day rest? Because God created the world in that way. God created in six days and rested on the seventh. Here it doesn't say that. I dare you, I challenge you to look at verses 13 through 15 and find any mention to creation. 
you're not going to find it. It doesn't say here that we keep Shabbos because God created in six days and rested on the seventh. You know where that does say it? In the book of Exodus. In Exodus, it talks about because God did it that way, we do it that way. Here it gives us a different rationale. We don't have a creation rationale, we have an Exodus rationale, right? It says, remember that you were a slave and that God took you out. Therefore, the rationale, therefore, God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So according to the version of the Ten Commandments in, in Deuteronomy, what's the rationale for Shabbos? It's because of the Exodus. And in, in the book of Exodus, what's the rationale? Creation. Because God created and rested in, in, on the seventh day, so we should do the same thing. Here it's, we were slaves, God took us out, therefore we observe Shabbos. What's the connection? If you tell me that we model our work schedule after God, that's one thing. But tell me that I should rest on Shabbos every seven days because of the Exodus. What's the connection? What's the conceptual connection? Many answers have been given. I'm sure you can come up with some on your own. One simple answer, which I like, very simple, very basic, is that you were slaves. And you know what it means to be a slave? You don't own your schedule. You know what a slave means? You're working 24-7. A slave means that you don't have your own time. And God took you out to give you your own time. And how do you express that? By not being a slave 24-7. By not working 24-7. God is saying, I want to grant you the dignity of, of being a human being and not a slave. A slave is always on call. A slave is always working. A slave is always under, subjugated to a master. And you, you're going to set your own schedule. And how are you going to express that? Because left to our own devices, well, yeah, I'll take a day off. Yeah, yeah, next week, uh, next. No. How are we we going to ensure this? Every seven days, you have a day off. That's called Shabbos. Shabbos expresses the fact that we are no longer slaves. All right, questions or comments? Yes, Mark. Uh, I really don't like the Rashi on this. Okay, which one? Uh, uh, On 15. Because the Rashi says, and you shall remember that you were a slave, he redeemed you on this condition that you should be a slave to him. Yes. Oh, I love even better. Even better than what I just said. Mark, thank you for, for, for mentioning that. Let me toggle it here. And let's get into some insight into what that means. Okay. Here. Here we go. You should remember that you were a slave. So God, Rashi says, as Mark just said, I just want to bring it up for everyone to see, God redeemed you from Egypt on the condition that you will be his slave and keep his commandments. So now you're asking the question, one second, we just got rid of slavery and now we're a slave to God? Why is that any better? I'll tell you why it's better. And in truth, this is the whole secret of the Exodus. Because you know what Moses didn't say to Pharaoh? Moses didn't go to Pharaoh and say, you're in violation of our human rights. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're enslaving us. You're, uh, you're a terrible guy. We're being oppressed. That's not at all what Moses said. Moses did not say, let my people go. It's a lie. He did not say, let my people go. You know what he did say? Let my people, God said, let my people go so that they may serve me. That was the message. The message of Moses to Pharaoh was never let my people go. My people deserve to be free. That was never the message. That's a distortion, right? We conveniently pull out from Moses' words to Pharaoh those iconic words, let my people go. Four words. 
But that wasn't what Moses said. Moses said to Pharaoh, So said God, let my people go so that they may serve me. And that's a completely different message. Why? One message is, Pharaoh, I don't want to serve you. I want to be free. I want to go. The second message is, Pharaoh, we love you, man, but we have no time for you because we have a higher obligation. We have a higher calling. We have a higher commitment. And this is the compelling message that you and I can say to our own activities. When, when, when we feel like our lives are kind of spitting out of control and getting the better of us and our time is slipping between our fingers and it's difficult to figure out whether we're coming or going, we need to tell ourselves the same message. I have higher obligations. I, have a, I answer to a higher authority. I have higher commitments, greater commitments. I have a higher purpose. I don't have time. Pharaoh, I would love to build your pyramids. I would love to be involved in your pyramid scheme. Oh, it's wonderful. Pyramids, who doesn't love pyramids? They make great slides. And yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It points directions up to the heavens. But you know what the problem is? You know what the problem is, Pharaoh? The problem is this. I have something else to do that's much more important. That's a more compelling message. It's not a selfless message. It's a selfless message. So what God is saying is, what does Shabbos do? Every seven days, every week, we tell our work, there's something more important than you. That's the same message of the Exodus. You with me? And that's what Rashi is saying. I'm, gonna, I'm combining all these ideas together. Every seven days, we tell our boss, or our workers, or our customers, or ourselves, as important as the work is, there's something even more important. And you know what that is? My purpose on earth. And you know who gave me my purpose? God Almighty. And that's way more important than any papers I need to push, any phone calls I need to answer, any emails I need to get back to, that those pale in comparison. Those don't even come, those don't even, don't even show up on the radar relative to living my divine purpose. Six days a week, we got to take care of business and earn some money. But on the seventh day, we can fully connect with why we're actually here on planet Earth. And that is absolutely breathtaking. And that is absolutely uplifting. And so that's what God is saying. I took you out of Egypt so that you can be a slave to me. What does that mean? Oh, slave, that's a trigger word. No, it is maybe a trigger word. So, so just delete that word and, 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 and reframe it for yourself. What does it mean? God is saying, I took you out of Egypt to give you a higher calling to grant you the dignity of purpose. Right? Victor Frankl, man's search for meaning. He who, he, one, he who has a why can endure anyhow. If we know why we're here, we can, we can, uh, we can, we can walk through fire because we have a destination. God is saying, I took you out of Egypt to give you a higher obligation. That's not demeaning. That's not disempowering. It's absolutely empowering. Okay, back inside. And that is the rationale for Shabbos. It's a declaration that there is something of absolute value of ultimate importance. And it's not the work that we're doing. Let's continue uh, with um, number five. 
Look how quickly it wraps up here. Commandment number five, honor your father and your mother as the, as the Lord your God commanded you in order that your days be lengthened and that it may go well with you on the land that the, that the Lord your God is giving you. This is one of the very few mitzvot where there's a reward mentioned. It says, honor your parents and what's going to happen? Your days will be lengthened and you'll be secure in Israel. This is one of the very few mitzvot that has a specific reward mentioned alongside the commandment. Now, why is it mentioned here? I've seen many, many commentaries. One that I think is very, I'm going to say cute, but it's also very poignant, is the following. If you honor your parents, right? If you honor your parents and your days are lengthened, in other words, it's less of a reward and more of a promise. Honor your parents. You know why? Because, Laman could also mean because, not only, not in order to, but because, because your days will be lengthened. And guess what you're going to need when you get older? When you get older, what are you going to need? Your kids to take care of you. Why will your kids, how will your kids to know to take care of you when you get older? If they saw you taking care of your parents when they got older. Are you with me on this? I probably should backtrack for a second. Honor your father and mother does not mean when you were 10 years old and they said clean up your room that you should that you cleaned up your room that's not what it means honor i mean that's that's also a good thing but honor your father and mother means as the talmud and jewish law clarify when your parents get older and they need help similar to the help that a child needs i'm saying like basic help transportation and food and clothing and what i mean by that is Taking them where they need to go. Making sure they're eating, literally. And making sure they're dressed and clean. All things that parents do for small children, right? Parents take their children where they need to go. Parents buy food, cook food, and feed the food to their children. Parents bathe and clean their children, and they dress them. These are all things that parents do for children. At a certain point in time, in the natural arc of life, parents are, 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 are back in a vulnerable position to be, to need those basic elements of care. At some point, you know, when, with, with, with advanced age, when, when person gets older, they're no longer able to get around, to shop, to cook, to feed themselves, perhaps to clean themselves, to bathe, shower, etc., and to dress themselves. So what happens then? The Torah commands. It's, it's one of the biggest misconceptions that honor your parents means when you were a kid to listen to your parents. You need, you need, a, you need one of the Ten Commandments to tell you that? <laughs> you, they're giving you a room in, your house, in their house. You should clean it up, right? You don't need a divine commandment to tell you to clean your room. It's logic. You're living in, some, in, in your parents' home. They're paying the mortgage... Yeah, they're, they're giving you a room. Make sure it's clean. You don't need a commandment. You know what you need a commandment for? When you're busy with your life and you have your own needs and maybe you have children that have their needs and then your parents or grandparents or whatever it is and then your parents need help, right? Because that's the way life, go life goes. That's the way aging works. Now they need help. They're in a vulnerable place. So who should take care of them? The Torah says you. 
honor your father and your mother. And like I'm trying to share with you this idea. Why? Because your days will also be lengthened, please God. You'll also live a long life. And you want someone to take care of you? Yeah, you want to be abandoned. God forbid. Or you want, you want your kids to take care of you? Sure. Good. How are they going to know that? Because you modeled it for them when you took care of your parents. This is what we call education. Lead educating by example. You care for your parents when they need help and your kids will take care of you. Okay? I hope that makes sense. Verse 17. Oh, Sarah, yeah. Hey, real quick, I was just... Sure. Um, what about the part that says um, whose principle remains in the world to come, which is respecting our parents? Oh, exact. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. It says in the Siddur, let me pull it up. Hold on. It's actually a Mishnah. Let me pull this up for my own reference. Make sure I'm not misquoting it. Okay, it says... These are the things. Elu Devarim. This is the Mishnah in... Peya? Maybe? It says, Elu Devarim. These are the things. Sha'adam Eichel Perisem Ba'ilam Azeh. That a person eats the fruits in this world and the principle remains in the world to come. In other words, it actually benefits us in both realms. We, 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 we taste of the prophets, the spiritual prophets in this world, and the principle remains everlasting for the world to come. In other words, some mitzvot we only get rewarded for in the afterlife, but we don't experience the immediate... Um, the immediate reward. But, oh, Elohim, and then the mission says, and what are they? The first example is honoring our parents. So honoring our parents is one in which we receive a reward on both realms, both in this lifetime and the beyond. And this lifetime, we're talking about that right now. I mean, the greatest reward is knowing that you're doing the right thing, right? I mean, that's the greatest reward. Um, another reward is the fact that, you know, setting that, modeling that type of care and attentiveness to our parents will only benefit us in the long run, right? We'll be, please God, we'll be taken care of as well. And don't think that we're using up the merits or the credits because the principle remains, the core um, posit positivity remains for eternity. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I've got something interesting because um, in Rashi, where he talks about uh, uh, honoring your parents is Hashem... Uh, your God commanded you regarding honoring a father and mother too. They were commanded at Mara. Uh, as it says uh, there in Mara, he established the nation, the statute, and the judgment. I just now looked that up. But the statute and the judgment refers uh, not to parents. It is also the red cow. Uh, uh, it says there he established a statute and judgment. At Mara, he gave them a few of the passages of the Torah so they should bring themselves with it. Uh, uh, Shabbos, the red cow, and laws involving monetary claims. Interesting. In a note from uh, Mechilta in Sanhedrin, what is that, Talmud? Or, I don't know. It's Medrash. Mechilta's Medrash. What it says is that um, red cow was put into the text of Rashi erroneously. Some suggest that the text originally had the abbreviation, uh, it's a vav, uh, two slashes, and olive, which stands for a uh, uh, Kavod Ah, honoring mm. parents. The abbreviation was mistakenly copied 
as Fay uh, Olive, which was interpreted as uh, interesting. The red cow. I just thought I passed that along. That's amazing. I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that. So it's interesting because a, a pay aleph, right? Pay is para, para pay, and then aleph raduma, para aduma, red heifer. But it, re, it could have been the chaf aleph, kibur av, aim, honoring our parents. So it was from Mara. That's so, that's so interesting. That's some great investigative work over there. That's very cool. Nice. That's like a little CIS uh, action. Okay, but, a, but just to get back to this verse, on a simple level, it does mean that the... I'm giving you like a bit of a drush, a drush, but on a simple level, it means that... Um, on a simple level, it means that... that the reward of honoring our parents is long life. As Sarah mentioned, right, referencing the, the reward for in this world or the world to come, we live long in this world and we have a beautiful world to come as well. All right, let's continue verse 17. Now we get into the last five commandments. And it, just, to, just to point out, the first five commandments began all the way back in verse 6. So look, I'm going to highlight how long those first five commandments were. There are 10 total, right? So the first five go all the way over here. See that, all that? All that blue highlighted text? All of that, the first five commandments. And the last five commandments? <laughs> right here. A bunch of do-nots, very quickly. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. That means human trafficking, not um, stealing a dollar from the cash register. That's prohibited, but that's not one of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are capital crimes. So murder is a capital crime, adultery is a capital crime, and human theft, human trafficking, kidnapping and human trafficking is, uh, is what stealing here means. And you, so that's six, seven, eight. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's number nine. And finally, commandment number 10 is this last verse. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor shall you desire your neighbor's house, his field, his manservant, maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Question is, why does it say all these specific things and then say anything? Right? It could have just said, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Right? Imagine you can just abridge the verse. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Why does it go wife and house and, sorry, house and field and mansion and then say anything? It seems like too little too late. Like you just listed seven things and like, oh, and anything else. It's like, <laughs> so there's different ways to understand this, but one way is that anything does not mean anything. Anything means everything, not anything. The Hebrew word is kol. Kol can mean anything. Kol can mean everything. What does it mean everything? Imagine if we change this word to everything. Then it becomes a meditation and how to not covet. It becomes the aid in assisting us against coveting. Why, how will we be able to resist coveting the wife, the house, the field, the manservant, the maidservant, the ox, and donkey of our neighbor? How do we resist in coveting something that someone else has? It's by remembering that if you want that one thing, then you have to have everything that belongs to your neighbor. You want the whole package? You want everything? You want one thing. You can't pick and choose. You want that life? You want everything? Yeah. Oh, look at that celebrity. They're on vacation somewhere on the islands in Greece. That would be so nice. Hold on. You want paparazzi? 
all in your face 24-7? You want to not have a pride? You want it? You want you can't just want the islands. You want everything? No? Okay, then, 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 then this is your life. That's a meditation. It's not somebody telling you. It's, it's an internal meditation that according to some commentaries the Torah is giving us. How can it be that I can help get out of being stuck in coveting this and that and the other? My neighbor, I should tell myself that everything is tied into a package. Everything has a cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You want that thing? Ha <laughs> ha, there are strings attached. It looks so pretty. It looks so beautiful. It looks so attractive. Sure. You're ready to live that life? You want, it, you want to give up this life for that whole life? You sure? Okay. Be careful what you ask for. Donna. So there must be a meditation for verse 17 regarding adultery too because... You know, regarding like murders, etc. You know how you know how prevalent in our world adultery is. It's almost like accepted as yeah. common. Yeah. So, what could there must be a meditation for that? I don't. I guess the meditation is, is verse eighteen. If you don't covet, then you won't look. I don't know that there's any magical formula that I can share with you. I agree with you. It's something that is. You know, I don't know. I've never looked up stats and how prevalent or whatever. But you know, anecdotally, I'm I'm aware of the fact that it's uh, it's certainly a challenge. Um, I don't think it's a new challenge. I'm pretty sure that it's always been a challenge. I feel like we learned something recently, something somewhere. What was it that we learned recently? The ancient whatevers used to steal. Why I don't know what. Steal each other's wives, whatever it is. I mean, this is not something that's necessary. I don't think it's a new problem. I think it's an age-old problem. What's the answer? I don't know that there's a magical answer, but I do think that not coveting is step number one, right? You, you stop coveting, stop looking elsewhere, so to speak, and, and that's helpful. There's also some practical, um, helpful uh, um, elements in Jewish law. For example... The sages, it's not a biblical prohibition, but the, the rabbis legislated the prohibition against yichud. You know what yichud is? Yichud means um, seclusion. What's seclusion? Seclusion means being alone with somebody that you're not married to. I, I, that's it. That's the end of the sentence. Being alone with somebody that you're not married to. That you're not married to. That, that it's... it's and Jewish law is prohibited. One is not allowed to be in a secluded place with someone that they're not married to. Uh, why? Because it's just creating a... It's just creating the enabling... I don't know if that's the right way to say it. It's, it's, it's creating a space where something could happen. And that's, not, and that's not kosher. Someone says, oh, it's, uh, Jewish law is so archaic. Oh, it's so out of touch. Really? Really? Out of touch? This never happens? That two people are alone or on a business trip or whatever it is and it happens to... Come on. Really? Of course. We know, we know what, what's going on. I wish that, you know, that it would be, people would be more aware that the commandment is as on the same level as do not murder. I hear, I hear what you're saying. In other words, we take maybe this more seriously than this. Okay, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, your point is well taken. Look, I'll tell you something else. And that is 
that um, this is something, Torah in general, has 613 commandments, and it's something, every mitzvah is important. Ten commandments are definitely the top ten. You know, they're definitely very important, essentially important. In fact, murder and adultery are two of the big three prohibitions that one is supposed to give their lives for in order to not transgress. So the third one is idolatry. So if somebody says, murder somebody or else your life is in danger, you're not allowed to take someone else's life. Commit adultery or else, you know, your life is in danger, cannot commit adultery. Serve idols or else, you cannot serve idols. Those are the big three. That we say, yarag val yavr. Be ready to be put to death, God forbid, and not transgress. Usually, transgress and, and stay alive. Somebody says, somebody says to somebody, I'll kill you unless you eat, uh, you know, McDonald's. Eat McDonald's and save your life. You don't have to give up your life for, for kosher. But someone says, take someone else's life, commit adultery, or serve idols, no negotiation. Even at paying the ultimate price. Anyway, I agree with you. Um, I don't know that we're going to run a billboard campaign anytime soon. I think in general, you know, this is not, we, we, we're, we, we are not in a fi um, fire and brimstone society where, you know, people are shaking their fists at, uh, you know, that sort of thing at, 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 at the world and saying, you know, do this, do that. Certainly not rabbis. It's not, it's, I don't think it's, 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 it's a, the approach. The approach is rather one of, you know, inspiration and, and, and coming at it from a different perspective. Would I hope that people take these, take all of the commandments seriously? 100%. Is there room to improve? Sure. I, am I going to point fingers at it? No. It's, I think we always start with ourselves. We always start with ourselves. What can I improve? And hopefully everyone's asking those questions. But point well taken. Sarah, jump in. Sarah, I see your hand is raised. But you're muted. No. Yeah. My hand, my hand, I'm sorry. My phone. Oh, okay. No question. Oh, no question. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah. No worries. No worries. Okay. All right. That is it for today. It's a little bit late. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, check out. Tonight, we have Torah studies. And we have a great class tonight. 7.30 in person and online. It's a hybrid class or dual class. So you can join in person at 7.30 at Chabad in town, in town Jewish Academy. On the belt line, um, we're going to be upstairs in the shul. You can join online on Zoom. I'll send out. I sent out an email this morning to the to the um, like a, one of these more uh, like blast emails, but I'll also send out a personal email invite a little bit later. So join us for that. If you come in person, you also get cookies, which you cannot get, which I cannot give you when you're joining on Zoom. So you want to join on Zoom? That's great, but I cannot give you cookies. And you can have your own cookies. But the cookies that I give are only going to be here at IJA headquarters. IJAHQ in the ATL. We're into acronyms today. All right, friends, have a wonderful day. We'll see you guys soon. Take care. You too. Thank All you right. So much. My pleasure. Thanks. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.